Hello, my friends. This is your Definitely Storytime host, Jamie. And if you're here, it's Definitely Storytime. So let's settle in and get comfortable, or whatever it is you prefer doing while you listen. And let's begin. We are reading Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. Chapter 44 Marianne's Note By assuring me that I was still as dear to her as in former days, that in spite of the many, many weeks we had been separated, she was as constant in her own feelings and as full of faith in the constancy of mine as ever, awakened all my remorse. I say awakened because time and London business and dissipation had in some measure quieted it, and I had been growing a fine, hardened villain, fancying myself indifferent to her, and choosing to fancy that she too must have become indifferent to me, talking to myself of our past attachment as a mere idle, trifling business, shrugging up my shoulders in proof of its being so and silencing every reproach, overcoming every scruple, and by secretly saying now and then, I shall be heartily glad to hear she is well married. But this note made me know myself better. I felt that she was infinitely dearer to me than any other woman in the world, and that I was using her infamously. But everything was then just settled between Miss Grey and me. To retreat was impossible. All that I had to do was to avoid you both. I sent no answer to Marianne, intending by that means to preserve myself from her further notice, and for some time I was even determined not to call in Berkeley Street, but at last, judging it wiser to affect the air of a cool, calm, and acquaintance than anything else, I watched you all safely out of the house one morning and left my name." watched us out of the house. Even so, you would be surprised to hear how often I watched you. How often I was in the point of falling in with you. I have entered many a shop to avoid your sight as the carriage drove by. Lodging as I did in Bond Street, there was hardly a day in which I did not catch a glimpse of one or other of you and nothing but the most constant watchfulness on my side, a most invariably prevailing desire to keep out of your sight, could have separated us so long. I avoided the Middletons as much as possible, as well as everybody else who was likely to prove an acquaintance in common. Not aware of their being in town, however, I blundered on Sir John, I believe, the first day of his coming, and the day after I had called at Mrs. Jennings'. He asked me to a party, a dance at his house in the evening. Had he not told me as an inducement that you and your sister were to be there, I should have felt it too certain a thing to trust myself near him. The next morning brought another short note from Marianne, still affectionate, open, artless, confiding, everything that could make my conduct most hateful. I could not answer it. I tried, but could not frame a sentence. But I thought of her, I believe, every moment of the day. If you can 
pity me, Miss Dashwood, pity my situation as it was then. With my head and heart full of your sister, I was forced to play the happy lover to another woman. Those three or four weeks were worse than all. Well, at last, as I need not tell you, you were forced on me, and what a sweet figure I cut. What an evening of agony it was, Marianne, beautiful as an angel on one side, calling me Willoughby in such a tone. Oh, God, holding out her hand to me, asking me for an explanation with those bewitching eyes, fixed in such speaking solicitude on my face. And Sophia, jealous as the devil, on the other hand, looking all that was... Well, it does not signify. It is over now. Such an evening. I ran away from you all as soon as I could, but not before I had seen Marianne's sweet face as white as death. That was the last, last look I ever had of her, the last manner in which she appeared to me. It was a horrid sight, yet when I thought of her today as really dying, it was a kind of comfort to me to imagine that I knew exactly how she would appear to those who saw her last in this world. She was before me, constantly before me as I traveled, in the same look and hue. A short pause of mutual thoughtfulness succeeded. Willoughby, first rousing himself, broke it thus. Well, let me make haste and be gone. Your sister is certainly better, certainly out of danger. We are assured of it. Your poor mother, too, doting on Marianne. But the letter, Mr. Willoughby, your own letter, have you anything to say about that? Yes, yes, that in particular. Your sister wrote to me again, you know, the very next morning. You saw what she said. I was breakfasting at the Ellisons, and her letter, with some others, was brought to me there from my lodgings. It happened to catch Sophia's eye before it caught mine in its size. The elegance of the paper, the handwriting altogether, immediately gave her a suspicion. Some vague report had reached her before of my attachment to some young lady in Devonshire, and what had passed within her observation the preceding evening had marked who the young lady was, and made her more jealous than ever. Affecting that air of playfulness, therefore, which is delightful in a woman one loves, she opened the letter directly and read its contents. She was well paid for her impudence. She read what made her wretched, her wretchedness. I could have borne but her passion, her malice. At all events, it must be appeased. And in short, what do you think of my wife's style of letter-writing? Delicate, tender, truly feminine, was it not? Your wife! The letter was in your own handwriting. Yes, but I had only the credit of servilely copying such sentences as I was ashamed to put my name to. The original was all her own, her own happy thoughts and gentle diction. But what could I do? We were engaged, everything in preparation, the day almost fixed. But I'm talking like a fool. Preparation. Day. In honest words, her money was necessary to me. And in a situation like mine, everything was to be done to prevent a rupture. And after all, what did it signify to my character and the opinion of Marianne and her friends, and what language my answer was couched? 
It must have been only to one end. My business was to declare myself a scoundrel, and whether I did it with a bow or a bluster was of little importance. I am ruined forever in their opinion, I said to myself. I am shut out forever from their society. They already think me an unprincipled fellow. This letter will only make them think me a blackguard one. Such were my reasonings as, in a sort of desperate carelessness, I copied my wife's words and parted with the last relics of Marianne. Her three notes, unluckily, they were all in my pocketbook, or I should have denied their existence and hoarded them forever. I was forced to put them up and could not even kiss them. And the lock of hair, that too, I had always carried about me in this same pocketbook, which was now searched by Madame with the most ingratiating virulence. The dear lock, all, every memento, was torn from me. You are very wrong, Mr. Willoughby, very blamable, said Eleanor, while her voice, in spite of herself, betrayed her compassionate emotion. You ought not to speak in this way either of Mrs. Willoughby or my sister. You have made your own choice. It was not forced on you. Your wife has a claim to your politeness, to your respect, at least. She must be attached to you, or she would not have married you. To treat her with unkindness, to speak of her slightingly, is no atonement to Marianne. Nor can I suppose it a relief to your own conscience. Do not talk to me of my wife, he said with a heavy sigh. She does not deserve your compassion. She knew I had no regard for her when we married. Well... Married we were, and came down to Cum Magna to be happy, and afterwards returned to town to be gay. And now do you pity me, Miss Dashwood, or have I said all this to no purpose? Am I, be it only one degree, am I less guilty in your opinion than I was before? My intentions were not always wrong. Have I explained away any part of my guilt? Yes, you have certainly removed something, a little. You have proved yourself on the whole less faulty than I had believed you. You have proved your heart less wicked, much less wicked. But I hardly know, the misery that you have inflicted, I hardly know what could have made it worse. Will you repeat to your sister when she has recovered what I have been telling you? Let me be a little lightened, too, in her opinion as well as in yours. You tell me that she has forgiven me already. Let me be able to fancy that a better knowledge of my heart and of my present feelings will draw from her a more spontaneous, more natural, more gentle, less dignified forgiveness. Tell her of my misery and my penitence. Tell her that my heart was never so inconstant to her, and if you will, that at this moment she is dearer to me than ever. I will tell her all that is necessary to what may comparatively be called your justification. But you have not explained to me the particular reason of your coming now, nor how you heard of her illness. Last night in Drury Lane Lobby, I ran against Sir John Middleton, and when he saw who I was for the first time these two months, 
he spoke to me. That he cut me ever since my marriage, I had seen without surprise or resentment. Now, however, his good-natured, honest, stupid soul, full of indignation against me and concern for your sister, could not resist the temptation of telling me what he knew ought to, though probably he did not think it would, vex me horribly. As bluntly as he could speak it therefore, he told me that Marianne Dashwood was dying of a putrid fever at Cleveland. A letter that morning received from Mrs. Jennings declared her danger most imminent. The Palmers all gone off in a fright, etc. I was too much shocked to be able to pass myself off as insensible even to the undiscerning Sir John. His heart was softened in seeing mine suffer. And so much of his ill will was done away that, when we parted, he almost shook me by the hand while he reminded me of an old promise about a pointer puppy. What I felt on hearing that your sister was dying, and dying too, believing me the greatest villain upon earth, scorning hating me in her latest moments. For how could I tell what horrid projects might not have been imputed? One person, I was sure, would represent me as capable of anything. What I felt was dreadful. My resolution was soon made, and at eight o'clock this morning I was in my carriage. Now you know all. Eleanor made no answer. Her thoughts were silently fixed on the irreparable injury which too early an independence on its consequent habits of idleness, dissipation, and luxury had made in the mind the character the happiness of a man who, to every advantage of person and talents, united a disposition naturally opened and honest and a feeling affectionate temper. The world had made him extravagant and vain. Extravagance and vanity had made him cold-hearted and selfish. Vanity, while seeking its own guilty triumph at the expense of another, had involved him in a real attachment which extravagance, or at least its offspring necessity, had required to be sacrificed. Each faulty propensity, in leading him to evil, had led him likewise to punishment. The attachment from which, against honor, against feeling, against every better interest he had outwardly torn himself, now when no longer allowable, governed every thought, and the connection, for the sake of which he had, with little scruple, left her sister to misery, was likely to prove a source of unhappiness to himself of a far more incurable nature. From a reverie of this kind she was recalled at the end of some minutes by Willoughby, who, rousing himself from a reverie at least equally painful, started up in preparation for going and said, "'There is no use in staying here. I must be off.' Are you going back to town? No, to Cum Magna. I have business there. From thence to town in a day or two. Goodbye. He held out his hand. She could not refuse to give him hers. He pressed it with affection. And you do think something better of me than you did, said he, letting it fall and leaning against the mantelpiece as if forgetting he was to go. Eleanor assured him that she did, that she forgave, pitied, wished him well, was even interested in his happiness, and added some gentle counsel as to the behavior most likely to promote it. His answer was not very encouraging. "'As to that,' said he, "'I must rub through the world as well as I can. Domestic happiness is out of the question. If, however, 
I am allowed to think that you and yours feel an interest in my fate and actions. It may be the means. It may put me on my guard. At least it will be something to live for. Marianne, to be sure, is lost to me forever. Were I even by any blessed chance at liberty again? Eleanor stopped him with a reproof. Well, he replied, once more, goodbye. I shall now go away and live in dread of one event. What do you mean? Your sister's marriage. You are very wrong. She can never be more lost to you than she is now. But she will be gained by someone else. And if that someone should be the very he, whom of all others I could least bear, but I will not stay to rob myself of all your compassionate goodwill by showing that where I have most injured I can least forgive. Goodbye. God bless you. And with these words he almost ran out of the room. Chapter 45 Eleanor, for some time after he left her, for some time even after the sound of his carriage had died away, remained too much oppressed by a crowd of ideas widely differing in themselves, but of which sadness was the general result, to even think of her sister. Willoughby he whom only half an hour ago she had abhorred as the most worthless of men. Willoughby, in spite of all his faults, excited a degree of commiseration for the sufferings produced by them, which made her think of him as now separated forever from her family with a tenderness, a regret, rather in proportion, as she soon acknowledged within herself to his wishes than to his merits. She felt that his influence over her mind was heightened by circumstances which ought not in reason to have weight. By that person of uncommon attraction, that open, affectionate, and lively manner which it was no merit to possess, and by that still ardent love for Marianne which it was not even innocent to indulge. But she felt that it was so, long, long before she could feel his influence less. When at last she returned to the unconscious Marianne, she found her just awaking, refreshed by so long and sweet a sleep to the extent of her hopes. Eleanor's heart was full. The past, the present, the future, Willoughby's visit, Marianne's safety, and her mother's expected arrival threw her altogether into an agitation of spirits which kept off every indication of fatigue and made her only fearful of betraying herself to her sister. Short was the time, however, in which that fear could affect her, for within half an hour after Willoughby's leaving the house she was again called downstairs by the sound of another carriage. Eager to save her mother from every unnecessary moment's horrible suspense, she ran immediately into the hall and reached the outward door just in time to receive and support her as she entered it. Mrs. Dashwood, whose terror as they drew near the house had produced almost the conviction of Marianne's being no more, had no voice to inquire after her, no voice even for Eleanor, but she waiting neither for salutation nor inquiry, instantly gave the joyful relief, 
and her mother, catching it with all her usual warmth, was in a moment as much overcome by her happiness as she had been before by her fears. She was supported into the drawing-room between her daughter and her friend, and there, shedding tears of joy, though still unable to speak, embraced Eleanor again and again, turning from her at intervals to press Colonel Brandon's hand, with a look of which spoke at once her gratitude and her conviction of his sharing with herself in the bliss of the moment. He shared it, however, in a silence even greater than her own. As soon as Mrs. Dashwood had recovered herself, to see Marianne was her first desire, and in two minutes she was with her beloved child, rendered dearer to her than ever by absence, unhappiness, and danger. Eleanor's delight, as she saw what each felt in the meeting, was only checked by an apprehension of its robbing Marianne of further sleep. But Mrs. Dashwood could be calm, could be even prudent, when the life of a child was at stake, and Marianne, satisfied in knowing her mother was near her, and, conscious of being too weak for conversation, submitted readily to the silence and quiet prescribed by every nurse around her. Mrs. Dashwood would sit up with her all night, and Eleanor, in compliance with her mother's entreaty, went to bed. But the rest, which one night entirely sleepless and many hours of the most wearying anxiety seemed to make requisite, was kept off by irritation of spirits. Willoughby, poor Willoughby, as she now allowed herself to call him, was constantly in her thoughts. She would not but have heard his vindication for the world, and now blamed, now acquitted herself for having judged him so harshly before. But her promise of relating it to her sister was invariably painful. She dreaded the performance of it, dreaded what its effect on Marianne might be, touted whether after such an explanation she could ever be happy with another, and for a moment wished Willoughby a widower. Then, remembering Colonel Brandon, reproved herself, felt that to his sufferings and his constancy, far more than to his rivals, the reward of her sister was due, and wished anything rather than Mrs. Willoughby's death. The shock of Colonel Brandon's errand at Barton had been much softened to Mrs. Dashwood by her own previous alarm, for so great was her uneasiness about Marianne that she had already determined to set out for Cleveland on that very day without waiting for any further intelligence, and had so far settled her journey before his arrival that the Careys were then expected every moment to fetch Margaret away, as her mother was unwilling to take her where there might be infection. Marianne continued to mend every day, and the brilliant cheerfulness of Mrs. Dashwood's looks and spirits proved her to be, as she repeatedly declared herself, one of the happiest women in the world. Eleanor could not hear the declaration nor witness its proofs without sometimes wondering whether her mother ever recollected Edward. But Mrs. Dashwood, trusting to the temperate account of her own disappointment which Eleanor had sent her, was led away by the exuberance of her joy to think only of what would increase it. Marianne was restored to her from a danger in which, as she now began to feel, 
her own mistaken judgment in encouraging the unfortunate attachment to Willoughby had contributed to place her. And in her recovery she had yet another source of joy unthought of by Eleanor. It was thus imparted to her as soon as any opportunity of private conference between them occurred. "'At last we are alone. My Eleanor, you do not yet know all my happiness.' "'Colonel Brandon loves Marianne. He told me so himself.' Her daughter, feeling by turns both pleased and pained, surprised and not surprised, was all silent attention. "'You are never like me, dear Eleanor, or I should wonder at your composure now.' and I sat down to wish for any possible good to my family, I should have fixed on Colonel Brandon's marrying one of you as the object most desirable, and I believe Marianne will be the most happy with him of the two. Eleanor was half inclined to ask her reason for thinking so, because satisfied that none founded on an impartial consideration of their age, characters, or feelings could be given— but her mother must always be carried away by her imagination on any interesting subject, and therefore, instead of inquiry, she passed it off with a smile. He opened his whole heart to me yesterday as we travelled. It came out quite unawares, quite undesignedly. I, as you may well believe, could talk of nothing but my child. He could not conceal his distress. I saw that it equalled my own. And he— perhaps thinking that mere friendship, as the world now goes, would not justify so warm a sympathy, or rather not thinking at all, I suppose, giving way to irresistible feelings made me acquainted with his earnest, tender, constant affection for Marianne. He has loved her, my Eleanor, ever since the first moment of seeing her. Here, however, Eleanor perceived not the language, not the professions of Colonel Brandon, but the natural embellishments of her mother's active fancy, which fashioned everything delightful to her as it chose. His regard for her, infinitely surpassing anything that Willoughby ever felt or feigned, as much more warm, as more sincere or constant, whichever we are to call it, has subsisted through all the knowledge of dear Marianne's unhappy prepossession for that worthless young man, and without selfishness, without encouraging a hope. Could he have seen her happy with another, such a noble mind, such openness, such sincerity? No one can be deceived in him. Colonel Brandon's character, said Eleanor, as an excellent man is well established. I know it is, replied her mother seriously, or, after such a warning, I should be the last to encourage such affection or even to be pleased by it. But his coming for me as he did, with such active, such ready friendship, is enough to prove him one of the worthiest of men. His character, however, answered Eleanor, does not rest on one act of kindness to which his affection for Marianne, were humanity out of the case, would have prompted him. To Mrs. Jennings, to the Middletons, he has been long and intimately known. They equally love and respect him, and even my own knowledge of him, though lately acquired, is very considerable. 
and so highly do I value and esteem him, that if Marianne can be happy with him, I shall be as ready as yourself to think our connection the greatest blessing to us in the world. What answer did you give him? Did you allow him to hope? Oh, my love, I could not then talk of hope to him or to myself. Marianne might at that moment be dying, but he did not ask for hope or encouragement. His was an involuntary confidence, an irrepressible effusion to a soothing friend. Not an application to a parent. Yet, after a time, I did say, for at first I was quite overcome, that if she lived as I trusted she might, my greatest happiness would lie in promoting their marriage, and since our arrival, since our delightful security, I have repeated to him more fully, have given him every encouragement in my power. Time, a very little time, I tell him, will do everything. Marianne's heart is not to be wasted forever on such a man as Willoughby. His own merits must soon secure it. To judge from the colonel's spirits, however, you have not yet made him equally sanguine. No, he thinks Marianne's affection too deeply rooted for any change in it under a great length of time, and even supposing her heart again free, is too diffident of himself to believe that with such a difference of age and disposition he could ever attach her. There, however, he is quite mistaken. His age is only so much beyond hers as to be an advantage, as to make his character and principles fixed, and his disposition— I am well convinced, is exactly the very one to make your sister happy, and his person, his manners too, are all in his favor. My partiality does not blind me, he certainly is not so handsome as Willoughby, but at the same time there is something much more pleasing in his countenance. There was always something, if you remember, in Willoughby's eyes at times which I did not like. Eleanor could not remember it, but her mother, without waiting for her assent, continued. And his manners, the colonel's manners, are not only more pleasing to me than Willoughby's ever were, but they are of a kind I well know to be more solidly attaching to Marianne. Their gentleness, their genuine attention to other people, and their manly, unstudied simplicity is much more accordant with her real disposition than the liveliness, often artificial and often ill-timed, of the other. I am very sure myself that had Willoughby turned out as really amiable as he proved himself the contrary, Marianne would yet never be so happy with him as she will be with Colonel Brandon. She paused. Her daughter could not quite agree with her, but her dissent was not heard and therefore gave no offence. "'At Delaford she will be within an easy distance of me,' added Mrs. Dashwood, "'even if I remain at Barton, and in all probability, for I hear it is a large village. Indeed, there certainly must be some small house or cottage close by that would suit us quite as well as our present situation.' "'Poor Eleanor! Here!' was a new scheme for getting her to Delaford. But her spirit was stubborn. His fortune, too, for in my time of life, you know, everybody cares about that, and though I neither know nor desire to know what it really is, I am sure it must be a good one. 
Here they were interrupted by the entrance of a third person, and Eleanor withdrew to think it all over in private, to wish success to her friend, and yet in wishing it to feel a pang for Willoughby. To be continued. Are you a person who does laundry? Because I am a person who does laundry, and as such, I have teamed up with Salty Llama to help make laundry a little bit easier, better for the planet, and more affordable. So if you want to ditch the jug and the mess and the waste, head over to saltylama.com and use my affiliate code, definitely storytime, no spaces, to get 10% off your order. There's a link in the episode description. And that has been our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll consider telling your friends and family and if you have the means, providing listener support. I also have a Patreon, and I have merchandise available on Teespring. Links are on the homepage. I thank you for choosing Definitely Storytime. <laughs>